Today we're going to continue our conversation with Shane Anderson on transparency, ordination, parachurch ministry, and how all of this finally culminates in academia and antinomianism. So enjoy the conclusion of our discussion. Yeah, and I and I I want to make a a sharp distinction between um, say the academic setting where I'm not necessarily against learning from an individual academically from a textbook or in a commentary if they oh, haven't sure. been ordained. But when, when it starts talking about church ministry, um, preaching from the pulpit, and the administering of the sacraments and counsel in conjunction with those um, works and, and efforts that they provide to the local church body— Ordination becomes a very important thing, and and that's I think that's a crucial distinction as well because people might wonder, well, does that mean I need to just cut off anybody that's not ordained? Can I not listen to this teacher or that teacher? Or does my Sunday school teacher need to be ordained or my Bible study teacher need to be ordained? Well, I, I think you should put yourself under as many ordained teachers as possible, just for um, why why wouldn't you? But yeah. Um, but you're, you don't have to cut off every single individual or source of information that's not ordained. You just need to be very careful when non-ordained individuals start to be plugged like ministers of God's Word, like pastors. And it may not say the word pastor, but it's being plugged that way. And this is, you know, this is kind of where we start falling into the, the gray area of not just parachurches, but then parachurch national conferences or parachurch regional conferences or things right. of that sort, and, and who we allow to stand up on stage and talk. No, they're not a, a, a minister of God's Word just because they talk at a conference, but um, there is, in our culture, going back to the transparency and experience thing, there is a strong tendency for us to relate to them as pastors even when that's not what's being presented to us. Right. And, and I do think that evangelical church and parachurch ministries need to take a step back and understand that that's what's happening, um, that, that they're becoming revered and respected as if they were pastors to one another or, or to the, the people who are under them. And we need to take the same concerns and level of protection that we would take as a pastor who's ministering in a local body, we need to make sure that people understand what our relation to them, relationship to them really is. Right. Um, so, well, yeah. it's just like, I mean, even this, this interview, us talking, you know, you're, you're a layman in an established church. I'm an elder in an established church. I'm not a minister in that church. We make a distinction between ministers and elders. So, you know, I don't have the church's imprint upon me to represent the national church everywhere I go. What I am is a man under authority serving by the grace of God where he's placed me. And so we, so people know the extent to which to take my counsel and advice. They know the extent to which I have the um, authority of Christ behind what I'm doing. You know, I am an elder to the people in our church, but I'm not an elder to the people in your church. And people, we need to understand that. I mean, that's, this is a, the basic principle of Ephesians 4. 
that in the ascension of Jesus to his throne, he gave specific people, he gave gifts to the church, but these gifts are actually um, people. And these, these men are shepherds and teachers to the church, and their whole ministry is the building up of the church in knowledge and good works into a unity in Christ. Now, that's where um, we come in, is that we, by these gifts given to the church, are being built up into a unity in Christ, and that that unity is such that we're not, in this life under sin, not tossed about to and fro anymore by every wind of doctrine. So when, so I think, what is the goal for the lay person? What is the goal for the non-ordained person? It is that I would be progressively, by the gifts Christ has given to the church in the ministry, the official ministry of the church, be built up into this unity more and more so that when the winds of doctrine come by and human cunning and the craftiness of deceitful schemes, I wouldn't be tossed around and led astray. But instead, I would be, Ephesians 4.15, those who speak the truth in love and grow up in every way into Christ. And so we do have a place for speaking and teaching and guiding others, those who are laymen in the church and um, children and the elderly and women all have a place in the church speaking the truth and building up others into Christ. But that's a, that is a, a different common ministry than the official ministry given by Christ from the throne that is to be to create the unity of faith and practice in the church. And so I do think, I do think that seminaries ought to show who has authorized the teaching of these people who are training our ministers. You know, does that mean everyone that teaches theology or teaches um, these things needs to be ordained? No, I don't believe so. But, but I do think we discount this stuff too quickly. You know, I, I'm sad to see, I'll go on a Reformed Seminary's website, and you can't find out who's ordained the man or woman, you know, for some, but who's ordained the man to be teaching and what church he is currently serving under. You know, I, I want to know that. I want to know who's a, who this guy's accountable to because he's training future ministers for the church. And I think it does matter. I think we, we think that by becoming stronger on these issues of ecclesiology, we would somehow not be able to bring the church together. But I disagree. And I think the OPC has modeled this well, that, you know, we've worked very hard on ecumenical relationships, but we've done it from the stand, from a different standpoint than the liberal churches. You know, liberalism has said basically by not believing and not being obedient, we're going to get closer to each other. And the OPC says, no, you know, the spirit of Christ is at work in his people to build us up into a unity of faith and practice. And so as we know Christ more, we'll know what he's doing in other people's lives more. And so we can serve a unity by becoming more committed to truth, more committed to doing things the way Christ wants us to do them. And I, I just think that's the more biblical model forward is open hearts to those outside our tradition, knowledge that Christ's spirit goes where he wills. We certainly see that in our day and 
commitment to doing things the way he said in his word. You know, we don't, God doesn't ask us for permission. He has given us his word so that we'll obey it. And it really, frankly, has, is irrelevant what his spirit has decided to do. I know that may sound crazy, but what I'm saying is how I decide to organize my life, live my life step by step is not based on what God in his freedom does in other people's lives. It is based on what he and his freedom has told me in his word, you know, and I think we kind of get some of this out of whack and it creates a lot of the disunity we have. You commented um, on the distinction between how the liberal church and a more conservative church would try and, and bring about this ecumenical connection or this ecumenical discussion and agreement. And I think it, it becomes a question of, are we seeking the, the least common denominator or the most common shared space? And yeah. the, the liberal perspective definitely is, what's the, what's the least we have to agree on? for us to be able to stand side by side. And one of the concerns I have specifically with parachurch ministries is that there there could be a tendency to accidentally do that, mm-hmm. and that when you do that, you can sometimes find the worst representatives from another person's tradition. So that mm-hmm. the, the Lutheran looking for a Reformed person in an attempt to make a connection and say, hey, look, we're helping bridge, this ecumenical divide, they're going to find the most Lutheran Reformed person that they can find, and they're yeah. going to dialogue with that person. And the Reformed person who's sitting here going, oh, look, I've, we're, we're making ecumenical discussions with these Lutherans. Well, they're going to find the most, you know, Reformed Lutheran person. You know what I mean? There's this, right. there's this tendency that when we really are looking for ecumenical discussions, we try and find the people who are in a different camp that are the most like us instead of truly engaging accurate representations of each other's traditions and coming to blows about it, having discussions about it, and and fighting for the largest scope of what we agree on. Um, You know, I've engaged multiple times in in public with, with some of the writing of Jordan Cooper, and I don't think anyone would ever confuse me and Jordan Cooper theologically. We're we're just on different spectrums. My goal is not to find the least common denominator between me and Jordan, although privately I might appreciate that and share that with him, but to engage to the best as possible the fullness of the Lutheran tradition that he holds to and to try and faithfully represent the the Reformed tradition, even in the places where I sometimes come out of alignment with it, to be an accurate representation of the Reformed tradition and say, Let's let's really discuss at the fullness of our theology, not setting anything aside just so that we can shake hands across the aisle, but aisle, but truly trying to to bring the fullness of our confessions together. And I think one of the places where we have seen some of this false ecumenicalism, and I, I know this might get you and I into some hot water, so I'm going to bring up the subject, and then we're going to. Well, I mean, we're going to. You have the edit button. I do you know have. I, <laughs> I, I do have the edit button, but instead, I think I'd rather just go into it with us both agreeing. This is going to be a very short segment of the podcast. Um, is antinomianism yeah. that uh, there are law gospel distinctions that are healthy, and there are law gospel distinctions that are not healthy. 
And there are adherents to both the healthy and the unhealthy version in the Reformed and Lutheran communities. And parachurches have absolutely no way of reining in the individual's who are holding to unhealthy views, ecclesiastical structures don't seem to be that concerned with making sure that their um, members hold to orthodox views. Um, but this is definitely something that we've seen in the last couple of years, and probably longer than that, uh, that there's not, uh, there's not a way for a parachurch group to rein in an individual that they see going off the rails and antinomianism happens to be one of the the particular doctrines that both sides of this of the two main legs of the Reformation, the Lutherans and the Reformed Church, both sides are struggling with them in their own right in completely different arenas. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think so. I mean, I think you know, you and I kind of became pals over some of this. Um, discussion online and you know we're you and i are i mean we're we're different but both of us have a similarity in that we're um you know we both engage with some academic theology but we're really local church guys who have jobs and take care of our families and are christian men you know and we just enjoy we want our minds to be saturated with good things and we want to serve the cause of christ so that's where we have similarities. I don't think either of us think we're experts on what it means to be Lutheran and Reformed and how to bring our, you know, how to bring our traditions into good dialogue and how to, you know, bridge the gaps between those things. But wasn't it interesting in the middle of the antinomian controversies that have arisen in Reformed circles over these years um, to watch the discussion about Lutheranism, I used to, you know, I would almost just crack up what people thought Lutherans were because of the kind of Lutherans that Reformed folks had decided to become friends with. And then I'm sure Lutherans probably, I mean, thought, I don't know what they thought Reformed people were, but, but as time's gone on, you know, I, I think some of some of the Reformed folks might think Luther's a legalist, and some <laughs> Lutheran <laughs> folks might have thought Calvin was an antinomian. I don't know. I, it is very funny to watch these things kind of play out in in social media world and you know pop Christianity. Um, you know, I remember some of the leaders of the in reform circles of what I would, I would really describe as antinomians. I mean, these guys are really, I think when I study antinomianism historically and biblically, and then look at what they teach and do, and certainly the fruits of their ministries and the people that have followed them. I mean, I think it's antinomianism. And yet I've heard people call it Lutheran. And I think, man, I mean, the Lutherans I knew memorized the 10 commandments were faithful to worship, believed that, um, you know, without faith, it was impossible to please God and believed that you had to endure in a living and real faith along with penitential repentance um, into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, they were not antinomian people. Their doctrine wasn't arranged like the Presbyterian doctrine I hold to, but at the heart, these were people who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, loved his word, loved his law, wanted to live for him. 
And, and yet I was seeing these people who were throwing off all restraint and all sound doctrine in many ways and being called Lutherans. And I thought, wow, that's odd. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I became, I became reformed reading Luther's large catechism. You know, <laughs> I, I read Luther's large catechism and I was like, dude, I can get behind this. I love the exposition. I love the emphasis on taking the 10 commandments seriously, taking God's law seriously, taking baptism seriously. Um, and it wasn't until many years later that I, I did some more reading and I, I stumbled upon, I guess, what um, those on the Lutheran side would call radical Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, well, man, these guys definitely don't sound much like Luther. I guess they must be Lutheran, though, since they're being published. And, and now I, I'm a little bit more educated and know that this this isn't quite true. We, we have these same divisions and these same fights on both sides of the aisle seemingly fighting the same enemy, um, that when I sit down with, with reformed individuals and I hear, like you said, this almost casual assumption that all Lutherans are antinomian, I can go, no, no, no. And I'll, I'll recommend, um, it's not published yet, but, uh, Jordan Cooper has a book coming out on two kinds of righteousness that I got to do some preview reading of, and I've described what, what Cooper lays out as the confessionally Lutheran perspective. And, they, they hear me explain it, and I do as best I can. I'm sure I'm giving it a little bit of a reformed spin as I'm explaining it, because I am processing it in my mind and articulating it. But people go, wow, that, that sounds like reformed theology. And I think sometimes it, it's just forgotten that we're not, we're not, that, we're not that separated. You know, we, right, we, know. We, we both believe we're completely and utterly justified by faith, apart from any works, and that we then do need to do works for our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, not, you know, to earn salvation, not to merit salvation, but because in grace and in, in the love that the Holy Spirit in, gives to us in Christ's love on the cross in his death that he gives to us, it overflows. You know, yeah. when, when, when David prays and says, my cup overflows, I take that as an image of what God has given us overflows out of us into people's lives around us. Yeah. And and the work that Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, when it has truly been received by us, it overflows. It, it can't just stay in us. It, it's That's just right. that it's just that great. And so um, I yeah. think it's definitely uh, an interesting parallel or an interesting irony that both both legs of the tradition have had individuals who have struggled with antinomianism, whether it be at the the academic level or the popular level. And and I think that kind of speaks to the the reality that truth can be found apart from tradition, and so can the same errors. The same yeah. errors can develop yeah. in any tradition. Well, and especially when we're in these traditions that take very seriously the Word of God as our true fount of what we believe. I mean, where we're not, you know, making this stuff up as we go along, but we're returning to the Word of God over and over as the foundation of what we believe. And yes, we have various approaches toward tradition. That's true, but we still have the same source. And so because of that, we end up with the same issues, you know, (laughs) over and over. And I and Christ's body is not divided. I mean, the the story, the story of the Christian in a tradition different than ours, 
is the same as our story ultimately. And we may use different words to describe that at times, and we may conceptually think about those things differently, but on the covenantal reality level of our communion with God and Christ, the relationship is the same. Our sins will have the same shape, our discipleship will have the same shape, and our perseverance into glory will have the same shape. Do we would it, would we be better off if we understood it more biblically and correctly? Yeah, I think we would. I think when we I think the New Testament has a good emphasis on knowledge that knowing things um, if we really know things from a, a biblical perspective, we'll actually love them more and live it out better. But does that change the fact that the basic shape of the Christian life is lived out the same way among people who don't know these things as well as other people who know them? Yeah, it is lived out the same way. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things I think is great about Reformed theology is I think we really— you know, we, we really believe salvation's of the Lord. This stuff belongs to him. It doesn't belong to me, not the master of it. So I can study it and love it. I can promote it and be joyful in that promotion, you know, and I can, in the right sense, um, let go and trust that God is taking care of these things. And my job is the service, faithful service of Christ. Wait.